Hello and welcome to the first vintage podcast of 2015 with me, Alex Clark. And after a month of pure indulgence awash with parties, mince pies and mulled wine, January is the time for reflecting on 2014 and making resolutions for the year to come. Among those who'll be yet again pledging dry Januaries and punishing gym regimes, there'll also be those whose biggest goal this year will be to finally start writing. Whether it's a poem, graphic novel, short story or 800-page epic, 2015 is the year to get it out into the world. After all, as Maya Angelou said, there is no greater agony than bearing an untold story inside you. Entering creative writing competitions can be an excellent way to start getting noticed. At Vintage, we've launched several different competitions which anyone can enter. In this episode, we're going to be speaking to the 2014 winners and judges of some of those prizes, including the Bodley Head and Financial Times Essay Prize, Harville Secker Young Translators Prize, and the Cape Observer Comicographic Short Story Prize to inspire you to pick up your pen this year. This is the third year running for the Bodley Head and Financial Times Essay Prize, which celebrates long-form writing from around the world. This year's winner is Edward Posnett from London with the essay Ida Down. Combining nature writing with history and reportage, it was a charming exploration of the harvesting of Eiderdown in rural Iceland, which then expanded on modern capitalism and globalisation. One of the judges, Simon Sharma, called Edward's essay The Opposite of Fluff, a perfect essay with a very big subject coming out from a narrative of a small bird. If you'd like to read Edward's winning essay, it's currently available on the FT's website, ft.com, and will be published by The Bodley Head as an e-short. Now, Edward joins me now, but not alone. Welcome, Edward. You've brought with you a small box out of which you've produced a bit of fluff and made me put it in my hand. It expanded and my hand suddenly got very hot. Explain to me what you have done to me. Well, I've got a large clump here um, of iodine, which is the most extraordinary substance um, and which really was the beginning of a, a long obsession for me. It's very, very fluffy and it has this amazing structure. Um, it's this very fine down with an enormous surface area and it's actually covered in microscopic barbs. I don't know, maybe I can grab it, actually, and next to the microphone. It's already, I should say, twice the size as when we got it out of the box. It's in a sort of small, you know, kind of chocolate box type thing. And it's now expanded to twice that size, hasn't it? You're right. And actually, you can condense it right down into a tiny little ball, perhaps the size of a golf ball. And it'll expand to almost the size of a football. And it's amazing. You can pull it apart and it will just stick back together again a little bit like velcro so it's sort of difficult really to to explain it um in in words you kind of need to feel it for yourself well we shall um, certainly take a picture of it and and put it up on our website so that if you're listening to this now you can see what we're talking about if not feel it but take it from me it's very very soft and very very warm and edward i'd just like you to explain how this all began this is what you've written about this substance but how did this what you call obsession begin that's a wonderful question, one which I've struggled a little bit to, to answer. I think it really began when I visited the London wetlands um, in Barnes. Um, and it was, I suppose, a rather lonely time in my life because my wife had gone away um, for a few weeks in Italy and was about to leave for the United States um, to do a PhD there. And I walked around the wetlands and I 
came across about four or five eider ducks, and their wings had been clipped, um, so they were permanent residents. Um, and I read a little bit about them. They're very beautiful birds, very large um, sea ducks, tremendously fat ducks. Um, and I read about um, the relationships um, between these ducks and the Icelanders, and the relationship has existed for, for hundreds of years. And essentially what it is is that uh, the Icelanders harvest the ducks down, um, but they don't do it by any sort of horrible means. They don't pluck the, the, the ducks. The ducks actually voluntarily um, nest in large groups, something they don't do naturally, um, close to human settlements in Iceland because they know that they'll be protected by the Icelanders. And the ducks, uh, they pluck uh, down from their own breast and they make uh, nests for their own eggs. And this down, as we've seen, is an extraordinary insulator. And the Icelanders, they, they collect this down. Some of them do it once the ducks have, have gone on. Some of them take it while they're still nesting, carefully replacing it with straw. Um, but it's just a very curious tale of symbiosis and cooperation. And I read a little bit about this, and I just thought this is so magical and makes me feel <laughs> quite, quite happy. Why not investigate it further? And so how did that investigation go, that, um, that exploration? Where did it take you? Well, initially, I did a lot of research looking at um, written material, what you know, travellers had written about the tradition of down harvesting in Iceland. Um, and I got in touch with a few Icelanders who actually were in the trade themselves. Um, and I met one extraordinary man called Jon, who actually is mentioned in the piece, um, who's devoted his life to Eiderdown, a complete obsessive. And we corresponded for a long time, and I learnt more and more about the ducks. And eventually, my dear wife... Um, who always knows what's best for me, said, look, why don't you go out there and stop talking about this, actually learn about it and, you know, touch this down and, and find out whether there's, there's truth in this story because, you know, we're, there are so many stories around about cooperation between man and nature, um, but so many of them turn out to be false. They've been generated by marketing departments. I wanted to find out whether this was really, really true, whether the words in, in the wetlands really um, were voracious. And I found out that, you know, there was a truth, there was a beauty in, in the relationship between the ducks and the Icelanders. And so then having done these investigations and got more and more into the subject, you decided to, to write about it. And I just wanted to ask you, in terms of this, this prize, whether how that came about. Did you write the piece and enter the prize or did the prize spur you to write the piece? Um, I, I really didn't know what would come out of my trip to Iceland and I wasn't sure that I would write anything. Um, I took a um, voice recorder with me and I recorded lots and lots of conversations, hours and hours of them, not really knowing what I'd do with the material, um, but knowing that what I was listening to was very, very interesting. Um, and then a friend of mine told me about uh, the prize and I got very excited about it. Um, my only concern was that I thought the subject matter would just be too eccentric, to put it bluntly, um, too, too, too strange. Um, but actually... I mean, the the subject matter is strange, but also it's it's very very familiar because um, you know it's a story. The relationship between the Icelanders and and Eiders is not something that most people know about, but the themes that it taps into, our relationship with natural resources, um, stewardship, are all really known to us um, and and resonate with us. They're things that come up in so many contexts, aren't they? And that we're, that are so often on our mind, and obviously that's a that's an interesting 
thing to think about when you start to tell a story like that is it's a sort of line you've got to tread, isn't it? You're telling a very particular story about a very specific thing involving your own specific researches and journeys. But you do actually need to relate it to sort of larger themes to to bring other people in. Yes, you're right. And actually, I, I drafted and redrafted this piece many times um, and it was originally much longer. And... Uh, I rather ruthlessly had to get rid of a lot of details that I thought you know, wouldn't really be of interest uh, to anyone but myself and the people who know me. Um, and I think as a writer, you've always got to be conscious about what details you, you do add and not presume that a reader will necessarily be interested in, in you. Because I'm present in this piece, but you know, on, only, only slightly. I, I, I'm really not very interesting compared to the things that I'm describing, so I want to be quite careful um, in the way that I inserted myself and the details which I felt passionate about but might not necessarily inform the reader's understanding of Iceland, of natural resources, of larger questions about capitalism and our relationship with the environment. Can I just ask you how this relates to the rest of your life? Is this an area that you work in or um, had you written very much before? So I'd written a fair amount beforehand but always for an academic audience and most of my work had been archival um, I specialised in the Middle East, in part looking at natural resources. Um, but I have always been addicted to talking with people at great length and recording conversations, but never really knowing what I would do with the material. So actually I have a bank of recorded conversations with people who I found absolutely fascinating. And um, this is really the first time that I've ventured into a slightly different area. And instead of relying on just archival material try to mix sources and to really get close to the things that I'm writing about. Um, it's quite difficult when you're writing about the Middle East, you know, in the 1940s, to get really, really close to people's experience. Your experience is, you know, somehow mediated. Um, but in this case, I really enjoyed getting close to the people who I was talking to and trying to understand them, and I hope that understanding was reflected in my writing. And has it been the start of something new, do you think? Do you think you might do more writing like this? Yes, I think so. I think um, for me it's taught me that not only is it important to write something which you think is good, but also to enjoy writing it, to enjoy that experience. And I really, really enjoyed going out to Iceland and learning about all these different quirky subjects, meeting all these people. It was just a wonderful carte blanche to understand a country. Um, and I want to try and take what I've learnt here and apply it to slightly different situations. I want to take other objects um, and try and use them as a starting point to ask bigger questions about natural resources. Um, so I'm amassing a, a little collection of very, very curious objects. <laughs> well, um, I don't suppose any of them will be quite as fluffy and warm as the one that we have <laughs> in front of us now. Um, but it certainly was an absolutely fascinating piece. And thank you so much for coming in and talking to us about how it started. Thank you very much. The Jonathan Cape Observer Comica Graphic Short Story Prize has been running for the past eight years and launched the careers of graphic novelists Isabel Greenberg, Stephen Collins and Joff Winterhart. Last year's winner, Alexis Deacon, won with his short story, The River. No stranger to publishing, he's a well-known children's author whose 2004 picture book, Bigu, was a New York Times Book Review Best Illustrated Book of the Year and shortlisted for the Kate Greenaway Medal. You can read Alexis's story on the Vintage or Observer websites and details of this year's prize will be launched in May.
I'm delighted to be joined now by Alexis. Alexis, you've come in to tell us about winning the very lengthily named Jonathan Cape Observer Comicographic Short Story Prize. Yes. But actually, you've come in with something almost as exciting. Tell yes, us what I've, happened I've, to you this morning. Uh, I've been showered with prizes at the moment. Um, I woke up to find that um, a book that I wrote when I was in college, so way back in 2002, uh, was just named by Time magazine as one of the 100 best children's books of all time so go me of all time of all so time we're yeah. talking oh, oh yeah month cave paintings five go you know them all. like this is everything <laughs> yeah and works. you better tell us what it's called uh slow loris is the name of the book and is it still available? Can people Do you know what? I think, it went, I think it went out of print I think it'll in be this country. Back I think they print, print, print it back into print <laughs> ASAP. Well, that is, that's fantastically exciting news. Thank you. But so is this. So you've won this short story prize. Now, as we, we've said, you are a children's book writer. Is this something of a departure for you, this kind of work? Um, yeah, it's a departure. It's a very deliberate departure. I mean, actually... Funnily enough, there's kind of uh, it's lovely to receive that award for Slow Loris, but don't forget this is a book that I wrote a long, long time ago, and um, I sort of uh, I felt like I peaked early in my uh, children's uh, picture book career, and um, gradually as I got older, my inherent oddness just came out more and more in my work, and I was finding that I was getting very marginalised. Also, I really, really wanted to try doing something else because. Um, as anybody who reads a lot of picture books will know, the same stories come around again and again and again. And um, it's a very, it's a lovely form, but it's also quite limiting. So I really wanted to explore some different ways of communicating narrative, which still use drawings. And to work in comics has been a lifelong ambition. So winning this prize is huge for me. Tell us a little bit about the short story that you won with The River. The River. Uh, it's about uh, three siblings, two sisters and a little brother, playing on the banks of a river in some sort of timeless, possibly Russian, uh, possibly turnless entry stroke uh, period. The two sisters are, uh, well, there's one sister who's extremely brave and brazen and she's egging the other two on to go deeper and deeper and deeper into the river. And um, in the end, her older sister in frustration goes out deeper than all of them and gets washed away. Um, and then uh, the younger sister is consumed by guilt as she walks home with her crying baby brother, only to get leapt on by her perfectly fine elder sister at the end of the story. But in the meantime, she's had all sorts of visions of the terrible punishments that will await her when she gets home. So it's sort of a story where you can really let your imagination run riot. It's in a sort of realist-ish setting, but then it just can go to all sorts of other places. Yeah, I think one of the things that I like most about the graphic novel or comic book format is how much the world of the imagination and the world that we see around us kind of blur into one another and you can um, move seamlessly from one panel to the next inside the mind of one of your characters or into another universe or wherever you choose to go you really are uh, completely unbounded by any kind of rules of physics or anything like this. And was this one of the first things that you did when you decided to go in this new direction or, or had you done lots of other things? Um, well, I suppose arguably, I mean, I illustrated a, um, a chapter book by Russell Hoban called Jim's Lion and I used a lot of strip um, cartoon in, in that book. But I, I had written a, a long story, very long, about 250 pages about Mr Punch, but it's all just doodles. And I showed it to lots and lots and lots of publishers and... Uh, I think Mr. Punch is, <laughs> is a bit of a 
<laughs> black mark when when it comes up. It's like, oh, wife abusing family killer. Well, maybe we won't publish anything with him in it, which I can understand. But yeah, so it was essentially the second or third thing that I'd done in this in this uh, medium, discounting all the millions of things that I did when I was a child. And just uh, to ask a kind of horribly obvious question, and, and probably the answer is a bit of both, but starting with the story, starting with the pictures, do they come all together? Do they come in a rush? How does it work? Yeah, it's funny. I mean, I, I do get asked this question a lot. And um, I think it's kind of crystallised as I've got older, the sequence. I would say it begins with a very nebulous idea just floating around in your head. Sort of something which has a resonance for you, something that has a meaning, um, a situation that you might have seen in the street or um, an echo of something that you've read in another story. And it sticks with you and it hangs around and you think, I would love to do something with that. And then what will usually happen next is it will get to a point where suddenly I will see how that scenario might resolve into some sort of conclusion. And as soon as I reach that stage, um, I will then try and put it into some sort of physical format, usually um, writing down dialogue uh, with very rough uh, drawings for where characters might go and what they might be doing and where they might, what kind of place they might be in. So they, these things sort of all emerge gradually, bit by bit at a time, sort of pictures and words yeah, kind of mounting up. For me, the key thing is the ending, because I have several stories right now knocking around in my head, but I haven't committed them to paper, because until you know that something has a conclusion, um, I know from bitter experience that you can work on it for years and years and years and never take it anywhere. But if you're actually working towards an end point, then you know that when, once you've achieved it, that's something that's actually been done, and then you can go and show people and possibly bring it out into the world. Now, this prize has been going for the past eight years, and really that mirrors fairly closely the sort of explosion of graphic novels in into a kind of more mass market um, audience, into people who really, you know, in, in fact, even just latterly in the last kind of two or three years, you've seen graphic novels um, and graphic stories appearing on prize lists where the prizes aren't dedicated to that form. So there's an enormous growing popularity. And I wondered if you had any thoughts on why that was, what what had started that off and what was con- making it continue? Um, I'm really not sure. I suppose, like a lot of other people who um, care about drawing, I think I would argue that it hasn't... The form has been there for a very long time, a very long time. Um, you know, it's like pre-Rowlandson um, kind of... Uh, like even cave painting kind of time, if, arguably. We've always told stories through the medium of pictures. I think what we're specifically talking about here is the popularity of it in this country because in France it has a very long prestigious history uh, with has been popular I mean you could get stacks of graphic novels in the supermarket they have a whole aisle for graphic novels I remember that when I was a child and they were thought to be they were aimed at both children and adults yeah you mm-hmm. could totally read them in adult company and not be looked on um, with shame and derision I, I couldn't tell you why they've begun to become a little bit more popular in this country recently it's probably partly to do with the quality of the work available or maybe it's just because people's you know sometimes it only takes like one good experience and you kind of you understand it's not like i remember when uh, mouse first arrived on the scene and that was a big eye opener for a lot of people i think um it, when you first read uh, a story in that format and it has meaning for you and uh, it it kind of 
uh, it stays with you. It has resonance. You, you kind of you love that story. You don't think so much about the format. Then the next time you see a graphic novel, you don't instantly judge it because of its format. I mean, really, it's just a medium. It's just like a, a novel written in text. Um, it's a way of telling a story. So if you've had one good experience of a story in that form, then maybe you're less likely to prejudge the whole form and maybe a bit keen to investigate what's out there. And it's very interesting that you, that you bring up Mouse because I, I guess one of the key things that we immediately think of about that is what it did was show that you could tell a very serious story, almost the most serious story of the Holocaust, in a sort of comic format. You could use mice for people. Yeah. Well, I think a lot of the issue in this country has been breaking down that preconception of what a comic is. I mean, as I say, a comic is just a medium. You can tell any kind of story in that medium. But people had associations with superhero comics with mm. you know the cartoons and the Saturday papers and they thought of it as either for children or slightly lowbrow or populist and I don't really think that there's anything wrong with any of those three things I consider myself as a child at heart definitely sympathetic with the lowbrow and extremely populist but of course you could tell any other kind of story as well and I think that now that the body of work is growing and the range of stories is growing I think people are realizing that more and more just tell us what you're working on at the minute. I am actually working on a fantasy story about an evil sorceress who uh, takes control of a castle. As I said, lowbrow and populist. But it does. It, <laughs> that one is under contract now, so that one you will see. That is, that is going to be coming yeah. to a, a bookshelf near us quite soon, I hope. Well, a year or so, I would say. We really look forward to it. Alexis, thank you so much for coming to talk to My us pleasure. today. The Harville Secker Young Translators Prize was founded in 2010 by editor Bryony Everode as part of Harville Secker's centenary celebrations. It aims to recognise the achievements of young translators at the start of their careers. The focus is on a different language every year, and so far the languages covered are Spanish, Arabic, Chinese and last year's choice, German. Last year's winner was Eleanor Collins, currently a student of modern languages at Trinity College, Cambridge. She translated Der Hausfreund, a short story by German author Julia Frank. Eleanor's winning translation could be found on granta.com. We're joined by one of the judges, Sean Whiteside, the prize-winning translator of over 50 books from German, French, Italian and Dutch. A former chair of the Translators Association, he sits on the editorial board of New Books in German, the advisory panel of the British Centre for Literary Translation and the Pen Writers in Translation Committee. He takes regular translation workshops for the London Review of Books and at Birkbeck College's Translation Summer School. And I'm delighted to be joined now by one of the prize's judges, translator Sean Whiteside. Sean, this prize had an awful lot of entries and uh, and you've read a fair few yourself, haven't you? I've read a fair few, but not all of them, I'd have to say, because there are almost 100, I gather, which is an extraordinary number of entries for a competition like this. It means there are an awful lot of aspiring translators out there and very gifted ones as well. A certain amount of winnowing or triage, if you like, occurred before I actually got to read the... Translation triage. Translation triage, which was done by a lot of the editors, I think, at Harville Secker. And by the time it was whittled down to 12 or 14 entries, perhaps, they were all really, really good. I'm sure the ones that were whittled out were very good as well, but these were extraordinarily good. And I think my fellow judge, Sally Ann Spencer, felt, as I did, 
this is going to be incredibly difficult, actually, to decide out of these 12 or 14 entries which one we're going to pick. I suppose just as a sort of everyday reader, I would feel that I knew when a translation was okay, you know, as in I wouldn't be sort of tripping up on words that I thought shouldn't be there and just seemed so out of colloquial English or or something like that, out of the kind of um, the scheme of the book. But what makes a translation so good that somebody like you, an expert, somebody who works in this field all the time, will think this is a brilliant translation? Once you know that the translation is accurate or reasonably accurate, I think what you're really going for first, and what I think editors like you to go for as well, is music. It has to sing. It has to have a rhythm, as you say. You mustn't trip up on things. It feels perfectly natural if... There's something experimental going on. It feels right. It doesn't feel like a mistake. There's a consistent voice. If there are two different voices, they're both consistent. In the end, when you've boiled it down to two or three, it is a very, very difficult decision, but it becomes almost alchemical. You and the other judges detect something, which is a question of tone, music, rhythm, that you feel is just right for the text. And it was very interesting that our final choice was unanimous, I think. And that was Eleanor Collins' translation of the short story by Julia Frank. That's right, yes. And what was it about her? Can, is, that, is that sort of sum-upable? I think there was a freshness to it. There was very little sort of midnight oil, if you like. It felt perfectly natural. Uh, There was a youthfulness to it, which is interesting because the voice in the story is youthful. And I wonder if that's just a natural thing, perhaps, because it turned out this was all done anonymously. It's important to stress. It turned out that some of the entries, I recognise names because I've taught various people and so on. Um, I didn't know Eleanor Collins's name. But it felt that there was a perfect match for the texture of the story and the texture of Eleanor Collins's voice. And yes, I'm very confident that she'll be able to bring that to other texts as well. As a translator, is that something, that sort of sympathy, if you like, between translator and and, and the material that they're translating, that you have to have? Can you look at a piece of work and think, this is something I can do? Or conversely, this is something I just can't do. This isn't in sympathy with me. I won't be able to do it. Very definitely, yes. There are books where... It doesn't feel like work. You think this book is just passing through me and coming out the other side, and that's fantastic. There are books where you think, I'm enjoying this, but it's not quite my voice. It's not my background. It's not my interests. And you try your best sometimes. In fact, quite often, and sally mentioned this as well, you can get halfway through a book and suddenly you catch the voice. And from then on, um, it's a not not a walk in the park translation. It's never quite that, but um, it feels natural. It feels good, and you feel exhilarated at the end of the day. And you know when that happens, there's a sort of click. There is a click. a click moment. Yes, there is a chemistry. Absolutely, definitely. It's often said that we are very bad in this country at reading the works of writers from other countries all over the world. And I think there's a sense that that's really changing. Is that your experience as a translator? It's definitely changed. It's changed beyond recognition, I think, over the last 20 years or so. I think there's a great openness, partly 
It was originally, I think, with the um, Scandinavian thrillers, obviously, because nobody cared that they were translated and everybody bought them anyway. Reading essentially a lot of the time for narrative in those particular instances. Definitely, yes. Yes. Um, But I also think there is an openness to perhaps experiment and a lot of writers in Germany, in Scandinavia, in France, in South America particularly, are writing in experimental ways that enrich our notion of what literature can be. On the other hand, I also think that people have always read translations. I think it's unfair to say that we don't read them because anybody who's, who reads at all will have read some Kafka, some Dostoevsky, some Thomas Mann, leaving aside the Stieg Larsons of this world. Um, we've always read translations, but perhaps not um, as naturally and as in the same quantity as we do now. Tell me a little bit about how you came to be a translator, how you came into this field of work. Back in the mists of time, um, I think it was very different in those days. People tend to study translation nowadays, but there weren't that many opportunities. Back then, there were very few of us. And the most common way, I think, to get into it was to start reading for a publisher which is what happened to me due to a chance meeting at a party. Um, I was asked to read some German books for Faber and Faber, and very shortly after that, I was offered my first book to translate, which was a collection of essays by Wim Wenders. And this was so exciting compared to um, the other various jobs that I was doing at the time that I leapt at it. (laughs) And all of a sudden, you find you are working in literature, and it's wonderful. And your name's on a book. And I think people have realized, a lot of young translators have realized that it is a way into literature now. But in those days, I had the feeling that there were about seven of us and we were all rather shy. And there were no social networks for us and so on. So we used to bump into each other in libraries and things. But And what about um, the idea of translation as a collaborative process. I mean, obviously, sometimes you'll be working with the work of a writer who's, who's dead, uh, and so that won't apply. But you sometimes will work quite closely with authors, won't you? I think it's a good idea if you can, and if they're interested, and if their English is good enough. You can have problems where an author's English isn't quite as good as they think it is, and they try and intervene because they haven't quite caught the tone of your translation. Um, It can be slightly awkward, but I've also worked with authors, um, particularly one Italian author that I work with, who is himself a translator, and that's been incredibly valuable um, because there will be... You will stumble occasionally, and perhaps you'll guess or something, and then your author is there to pick you up and say, no, no, actually, that was nearly right, but not quite. And as you were saying before, you know, the number of entries to this prize is an extremely good sign. Our openness to read translations from different parts of the world also. But what advice would you give to somebody who's interested in going into translation now? That's a very good question. There are lots of ways into it now. There are mentorships organised by um, Free Word Centre and British Centre for Literary Translation. Um, there is a fantastic organisation called the Emerging Translators Network, which lives up to its name and gives advice to not only young translators, but people who've moved from other careers to become translators. 
Um, there's a huge amount of enthusiasm, much greater understanding of how the process works, of how publishing works, um, of how to work with publishers, how to negotiate contracts, much more clued up these days than um, I remember us being years ago. Thank you so much for coming in to talk to us about the prize and thank you very, very much for judging it. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Vintage Books podcast and thanks to all my guests this month. We hope we've inspired you to get writing this year and to enter one of our writing competitions. We can't wait to read your creations. Keep checking the Vintage Books website at www.vintage-books.co.uk for submission details. If you've missed any episodes of the Vintage Podcast and would like to listen again, why don't you subscribe to the Vintage Books Podcast on iTunes or follow us on SoundCloud. All episodes are also available at our website. We'd love to know what you think, so if you have two minutes, please give us a rating or leave a comment. Until next time, goodbye. Goodbye.